Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interest, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and on the line we have myself, Jacob Andrewafa. And me, Zay Alcorn. How you going? All right. So we have a pretty good program lined up today. Um, so we're gonna, there's been quite a number of um, amazing kind of political developments that have kind of happened in this kind of past weekend um, with the victory of MAS, Movement Towards Socialism in Bolivia, and which is what we're going to be interviewing um, Federica Fontes about, who will be our first guest of the program. And then we also have the um, the New Zealand election result, which we're going to be having an interview with Fight Back activist Annie White um, on our program to talk about um, the implications of that election. Now, I guess the main thing, kind of, the, to start off the program, uh, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation to pay our respect to elders past and present and that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Now, I guess the first kind of story I kind of want to um, quickly just mention is in the case of Victoria. Um, Victoria is... Um, in, at least in Melbourne, um, it's in the process, I guess, of easing restrictions. We are only getting like one to three cases a day, um, which is actually very significant. Um, I think, you know, some credit to um, the Andrews government for having such a good turnaround. Although this is um, one of the kind of interesting things to note about Victoria or Melbourne at least is um, Melbourne compared to other parts of the world is actually probably the longest lockdown uh, in International, when it compares internationally. Um, so yeah, and we're, it's looking like probably as early as probably from the first weekend of November, um, the four reasons to go outside will be abolished, um, and will likely be able to socialize to a certain degree, but it'll have to be in a more limited kind of capacity because I think with the easing restrictions, I think you'll only be able to have like two people over at your house, et cetera. But of course, you're, um, Right now, with the current restrictions, you are able to meet up with friends um, outside to have a picnic, etc. But yeah, Zane, do you have any comments on that score? Well, just to say that it has been the longest, uh, probably one of the longest lockdowns around the world, but also very effective at, at stopping that second wave. And there's been a few comparisons going around social media this week comparing Australia to France or Great Britain and kind of looking at what their numbers were back in July when, uh, you know, all three countries were, or, or Victoria and then these two other countries in Europe were sitting at around 750 to 800 cases um, per day and now 
fast forward to today and the wave has been well and truly flattened, destroyed in Victoria, whereas in these other countries their their cases are just skyrocketing. Probably the weather has a bit to do with it. It's warming up here. COVID doesn't like warm weather. They're going into winter over in Europe. That's, that is a factor, but it's got to be said that the, the, the Andrews government strategy, whilst it does inflict pain and it's, it's not pleasant to be stuck at home and for a lot of people to be unable to work, it has been quite effective, like credit where it's due, I think. Yeah. Although that said, I will raise, I guess, one criticism. Um, in a sense, when we compare, um, basically there has been a lot of stuff coming out about the state of the public health system in Victoria. And I think it's quite clear to me um, that based on reports that the contract tracing um, and the public health system response is really not up to scratch in the case of Victoria, especially compared to New South Wales. Like, for example, New South Wales has had some cases of community transmission, like at least three to four. And, of course, that's in the context of a certain level of eased restrictions. In fact, New South Wales, for all intents and purposes, is basically open. And essentially, they've been, um, all the reports have suggested that their contract tracing has already followed up forwardly 100% on those three to four cases where, in the case of Melbourne, it is actually struggled with um, those level of contract tracing with those level of cases. Because I think there is going to be a thing, I think, because I think the... It, while it was good that Victoria, um, the Victorian government took a good approach to lockdown, having such harsh lockdowns is not likely to be sustainable in the long term, um, unless, until there's a vaccine. Um, and I think, you know, it's going to be more difficult. Let's say if Melbourne reopens, um, and then has another outbreak, um, you would hope um, that they've put some effort into addressing these issues of the contract tracing, uh, et cetera, uh, to actually address it and not have to go into another stage three, stage four lockdown, which I just think in some ways is just not going to be sustainable. Um, not, not from, I'm not thinking the sustainable in terms of from an economic kind of perspective, but just more from a kind of social, cultural kind of perspective in terms of, you know, because I know a lot of my friends, People I know are feeling kind of fatigued from lockdown, even from people who were previously in full kind of support of, I guess, the lockdown measures. And I think, you know, that is actually a real, real thing that could potentially happen. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and there's, but that's, there's been a bunch of analysis as well, looking at how going right back to the Kennett government in the early 90s, there's just been a huge neoliberal uh, reduction of funding and resources to public health in Victoria. And ultimately, that's that reduction in funding and resources and the failure of the Andrews government to reverse that. I mean, to some extent, their hands are tied. The state governments get funding from the federal governments. So it's kind of all state governments can do if they want to try and kind of reverse the neoliberal um, gutting of, of public health care and education, all they can do is go into lots of debt because uh, it's the federal government that levies taxes and also dishes out public funds to these institutions. 
but yeah, that, it's, it's definitely that's a key part of of why this got out of control. And, and yeah, you would hope that they pump more resources into it to try and stop a third wave from happening. Because I agree, there's there's a lot of fatigue around this, and it's not helped by the Murdoch media and co. You know, very consciously cultivating. Um, opposition to lockdowns and kind of fanning the flames. Anyway, um, we might just play, I guess, a quick announcement and then we might want to, I guess, our first interview um, for the program. Yes, looking forward to this. COVID-19 is a sickness that can spread from person to person. It can be dangerous, especially for our elders or people who are already unwell. We can all help stop the spread in our communities. Cover a cough with the inside of your elbow instead of your hand. Wash your hands with soap for at least 20 seconds after you cough or sneeze. Go to the toilet and before you make any food. Keep away from people who are sick, coughing or sneezing. Avoid going to places where there are lots of people. At this time, it is best to stay at home and away from other people as much as we can. If you're feeling unwell, have a fever, cough or sore throat, or worried about someone else, phone your doctor, clinic or medical service right away for advice. It is important to stay connected and strong as a community and keep our mob safe. Visit health.gov.au or your local health service for more information. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Okay, good morning. You are listening to... You're listening to Green Left, and um, for our program today, we have Federico Fontes um, on um, on our program today um, to have a bit to have a bit of a discussion about the recent um, election result in Bolivia. Um, probably some of our listeners are probably aware um, that last year um, Bolivia was the subject of this right wing kind of coup. Uh, against uh, the movement towards socialism government. And now recently, um, last weekend or this weekend or, or whatever way you, um, you um, mark the time, um, um, there has been a recent election in Bolivia and the um, movement towards um, socialism has won overwhelm, uh, overwhelmingly kind of majority against the right-wing coup government, um, which I think is a very kind of significant result for the left, especially since we don't tend to have many victory kind of stories in, in terms of the left. So I think this is a very kind of positive thing. Um, so, yeah, Fred... I guess what maybe to kind of start off, maybe having um, given, I guess, a bit of a background, I guess, a political background to, I guess, this election um, and the kind of election result, and maybe we can go in and get into, I guess, more specifics about um, the election and Bolivian politics in general. So the the, the, the backdrop to this election really uh, is is three free factors. Uh, the first is the one that you mentioned, which was essentially the the coup that took place last year. Last year in October, there were presidential elections. In those elections, the then candidate for the movement towards socialism and at the time President Evo Morales uh, won those elections. Uh, the way the Bolivian electoral system works, that you can win outright in the first round if you get over 50% of the vote or if you obtain a margin of more than 10% on your nearest rival. Uh, Evo Morales achieved that, uh, beating his nearest rival, Carlos Mesa, uh, by just over 10%. However, those results were hotly disputed 
leading to a wave of protests in Bolivia. And then finally, the military stepping in uh, to demand Evo resign and hand over power. Subsequent to that, we saw an illegitimate interim regime under interim president Janine Añez, a largely unknown senator, uh, preside over a government whose almost immediate first instincts was to overturn a lot of the uh, important gains that have been made in terms of Indigenous representation in the state, even such moves, symbolic moves as taking down the Wipala flag, the Indigenous Wipala flag uh, from the presidential palace, uh, brutal repression against anti-coup protesters, including two massacres um, that left uh, dozens dead, um, and subsequent persecution, uh, terrorization, imprisonment of supporters of the movements towards socialism. So that's, that's the first factor, uh, essentially a, a, a counter-revolutionary coup that installs in a, a right-wing regime who uses that power to try to essentially uh, re remove from the political scene the movement towards socialism. And the second factor has, of course, been the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Bolivia's handling of the pandemic has been amongst the worst in the world. Um, it is at least within the top five, uh, and at some points has been in the top three in terms of per capita death rates uh, from COVID-19. Of course, its population is much smaller. So in overall numbers, it doesn't get much media attention. But on a per capita rate, it's had one of the highest death rates by far in, in the world. Compounding that problem is the cases of corruption that have been exposed uh, in the government's so-called attempts to deal with the pandemic. The most famous case being the the purchasing of uh, respirators from Spain, at which the price was you know, more than double what the going rate was for those ventilators. So clearly a case of large scale corruption that took place. Um, many people pocketing money uh, from the health budget in the context of, a, of a, a deep global pandemic, which was particularly hitting Bolivia very hard. And the third aspect is the, the economic aspect. So that is after 14 years of movement towards socialism, government that had seen sustained economic growth, in fact, had seen Bolivia leading the region as the, the largest growing economy. We've seen a massive contraction in the, in, the, in the country's economy over this last year. Of course, that's in part to blame uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's not exclusively uh, explained by that. We've seen GDP contract on a, on a very large level, uh, meaning that, you know, we've seen uh, a rise once again uh, in poverty, something that had been tackled very uh, very well by the, the previous movement towards socialism government. Uh, we've seen unemployment rise. So all of these factors set, set the framework for the elections that took place uh, last weekend. And so what can you tell us, go tell us, I guess, a bit more, I guess, about the implication, I guess, of this kind of electoral response um, um, in terms of the electoral result, um, especially in terms of, like, you know, the international response and what is kind of like the prospects um, for the movement towards socialism to kind of take advantage of this um, increased kind of majority yeah, so the, the you know how, how do we explain the vote? The, the vote really is a, a reaction to to all of this backdrop on the one hand. So from from the from the from the indigenous majority uh, in in Bolivia, it's 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 a reaction against what they've seen as a, a regime that has directly attacked uh, not not just their uh, their economic well-being, but even their their right to exist uh, as as a group of people in in, in Bolivia. So there's certainly been a strong element of the vote uh, that's been generated is an absolute need to get rid of this repressive uh, regime, which which I should add, 
you know, or had already on, on two previous occasions, uh, attempted to, to postpone the elections and was already trying to postpone these elections was only because of the mobilizations, um, by social movements that actually enforced this election date to occur and for the elections to, to go ahead. So in, in that regards, that, that was an important aspect. That together with the ability of the movement towards socialism to present a project to the Bolivian society that both built on the important achievements which many Bolivians continue to support um, uh, today, are the important achievements of the previous movement towards socialism government, combined with measures of how to move forward in the context of the economic crisis and the pandemic, really explain this, this, this large vote. Now, the international reaction, because the vote has been so large, has been overwhelmingly to accept and congratulate and acknowledge this result. This is quite different to the to last year's elections result, uh, where foreign factors, uh, whether that be the US government, whether that be the General Secretary of the Organization of American States, attempted to uh, use that, the closeness of the vote to sow uh, doubt about the legitimacy of the result, to sow doubt about the vote, and essentially to pave the way for this coup. This is just not being possible. And the most clearest example of that is, even though that's still today, we don't have the final actual official tally. Um, on the night of the elections themselves, uh, Añez, the interim president herself, came out even before figures had been released to say, look, it seems clear from all the data we're receiving that um, that Luis Arce, uh, the mass candidate, has won. So we 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 accept the result, and we, we you know we hope that he governed for, for in the interest in the interest of Bolivia. And what are the prospects moving forward? As I said, it's it's a difficult prospect because it's facing an economic crisis which is extremely deep. It's facing uh, one of the worst um, hit, it's a country being worst hit uh, by COVID-19. Um, but there's an important base of support from which to build on. Uh, it's, it, it has to be, it's important to emphasize that it's, it, it's still only uh, a, a beginning base. Uh, 53 or 54% looks like what might be the final end result is an extremely good result. Uh, unheard of, the only other president to get that kind of vote has been Evo Morales in, 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 in Bolivia, in, in, give one, one more exception, but in, in Bolivian history. Uh, but there'll be a need to, to continue to build on that support and that will be have to be done by providing concrete responses uh, to, to these very pressing issues. And kind of next kind of question, and I think it would be kind of good to kind of address this, um, especially since... Um, often on the left, there has been kind of this debate about um, what is the actual kind of character of the MAS government. Um, is, it a, is it a progressive government or is it just a, ref, a reformist kind of government? Um, or has it been, is it or is it kind of partially to blame for the, or is it entirely to blame for the economic sort of problems um, that kind of Bolivia kind of faces. And so I'm kind of interested to kind of hear your kind of comments and kind of analysis in response to kind of that often sort of um, that debate that kind of occurs in the left in response to some of these pink tide kind of left wing governments um, such as Bolivia. Yeah, I, I think that when China analysed the, the mass and what it represents, it, it's just important to understand Precisely what is the mass and its trajectory? I mean, the, 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 even starting from the fact that its name, movement towards socialism, is not the the name that the founders of the organisation wanted. I mean, the, the, what is today known as the mass, or more accurately, actually, the mass IPSP, IPSP which is the instrument, popular instrument for the sovereignty of the peoples, um, begins as a response 
in particular uh, by the coca growers of the Chapare region, uh, where Evo Morales um, you know, grew, grew, went through the ranks of the trade union to become the leader of, of that union, a response to the repressive policies, uh, repressive actions of governments, and a determination by this group, this, this particular trade union, in alliance with other Campesino and Indigenous unions, to say, well, look, the only way we're going to put an end to the, these repressive actions and these repressive policies is by changing the people in power. If we want to change the laws, we need to be in the, in the, in the positions of power to change those laws for ourselves, to make sure those laws benefit us. And that's where the, the idea of creating the political instrument for the sovereignties of the people comes about. Um, it's viewed not as a traditional political party, but rather as one, a, a, a political wing of the social movements. Um, what it's able to do is very quickly gain uh, an important base in Cochabamba, where the Chapare region is, where Evo is elected to, to national parliament together with a, a number of other uh, deputies. Um, from there, it's able to build in more alliances with other social movements, begin to gain traction in other parts of Bolivia, uh, recognising that this was, uh, you know, uh, not enough um, and seeing that there was a widespread discontent with the, the existing governments in the early 2000s, particularly following the uprisings that overthrew a president in 2002, a similar uprising in 2005. The MAS acknowledges that it needs to expand its base even further and so starts to attract uh, movement, popular movements in urban sectors, as well as uh, intellectuals, the left, left intellectuals, uh, smaller left parties, brings them into its ranks in order to try to con, con, you know, build a coalition um, that, that is able to then present a project to society that can obtain the kind of level of support unheard of for any other previous uh, president uh, in, in recent times. And prior to Evo Morales, it was very almost unheard of for any party to get more than about 25% of the vote. Um, what we saw with Evo Morales's election in 2005 was that he won with over 50% of the vote. This is, this is where the must comes from, and this, this in many ways explains how it then went on to govern. Uh, it explains, for instance, the constant tensions that have existed between uh, street protests uh, and wanting to access positions of power. Um, so social movements, you know, being unsure of, or social leaders being unclear of what is their exact role when we are no longer protesting against uh, a government that opposes us, but that we are today dealing with a government that is supposedly meant to be representing us, and in fact that some of our key leaders are members of, of that same government. It also explains some of the tensions that have existed between these social movements and those that they refer to as the, the invited ones, those that have joined the must later on, but in many cases because of their professional training, um, because of the fact that they've had a university education, have perhaps leapfrogged into positions in ministries, uh, in, in parliament, positions that the social movements believe rightfully belong, belong to them. But what, what the MAS has been able to do, of course, not, not without mistakes and errors, you know, uh, as, as, as occurs in any process such as what's occurring in Bolivia uh, today, where you're trying to fundamentally overturn 500 years of, of colonialism, or of, of, of indigenous dispossession, um, of extreme poverty, um, you know, the, the mistakes will be made. But what, what we're fundamentally seeing is, is a party, as I said, rooted in the, in the indigenous campesino movements of the countryside and that has broadened out its, its base uh, to, to, to expand its, its, its electoral reach, that has been able to present a project to society that has enabled it to be able to win elections. 
now attempting to do that with all the contradictions that come about when you bring together all, all, all of these different forces. And the reality is that while mistakes have made, overwhelmingly the positives have been much more, have, have, have outnumbered those. Whether we look at it in economic terms, as I mentioned before, I, I mentioned GDP growth, but not, not just economic growth, but the, that, that growth, that wealth has been redistributed to uh, you know, see some record levels of reductions in, in poverty and extreme poverty, whether that be in, in, in attempts to actually deal with some of the contradictions that come about when your economy is based on uh, natural resource extraction, but you're also wanting to uh, lead the world in fighting climate change. You know, how do you deal with those problems? Again, not without its mistakes, the Bolivian government has actually been able, uh, you know, dealing, trying to deal with these and come up with policies and laws and, 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 and concrete actions, um, how, how to do that. And we're already starting to see that with the new mass government today, where in response to the economic crisis and the pandemic that the government faces, uh, Luis Arce has made it clear what, what he believes at least are the first initial steps that need to be taken uh, in order to deal with the current situation. And that is one, renegotiation of Bolivia's foreign debt. And Bolivia cannot continue to pay the IMF, the World Bank, uh, all, all these other institutions, uh, money that in many cases are illegitimate loans, including, for example, loans that were literally taken out just days before this last election by the, the illegitimate regime, uh, the illegitimate Añez regime. Uh, Arce has said there's no way we can continue to pay this, and actually the world has to share the burden of what this pandemic has meant for everyone. Um, and so that means in Bolivia's case, either deferral, moratorium or cancellation of foreign debt, and the imposition of a wealth tax. Uh, that is, you know, we, we can't wait, you know, to do a tax on, uh, you know, increased company tax or, 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 or things like that, uh, particularly where, you know, largely the main companies are already state owned or have a, you know, a large share of the state when it comes to natural resource extraction or there are already special royalties or, or, or rents on, on these taxes. But when it comes to small business, medium sized business, they're already trying to deal with the economic crisis. The increase in those taxes will take a long time uh, before they start to fill uh, uh, government uh, coffers. Instead, what we need is an immediate tax on larger states. And those who have too much money need to, need to put a share of that over to help Bolivia deal with the economic crisis. And they're very positive announcements. Uh, of course, for now, they are just announcements. Uh, Arce hasn't even assumed power yet. He's still a, still a president-elect, and we'll see what, what happens. But they're positive both because they show that the mass is trying to figure out ways forward in the current context, but also providing and raising issues that are of global interest because the, the issue of global debt um, absolutely is an issue that all people uh, should be taking seriously if we want to get this world out of the pandemic, if, uh, if we want to seriously find a solution, um, because there's no way we're going to find a solution to a global pandemic if we leave the, the, the majority of the world's population mired in, in, in debt and poverty um, as we currently have. Yeah, and that um, go, kind of links, I guess, goes into, I guess, the next question, um, which is kind of Bolivia's relationship with the global um, capitalist system, i.e., in some sense, the question of U the U United States and their kind of interests and also the interest of capitalists like the likes of kind of Elon, kind of Musk, um, because there's been this whole thing, even though it's sort of not, it hasn't really been clearly kind of spelled out, but one of the kind of contexts for um, why the coup um, was able to happen with the support of um, um, the Western powers or the United States was the fact that 
the Bolivia has um, massive uh, access to all this um, to lymphium resources, and of course Elon Musk and his uh, and Telsa uh, has a lot um, has a lot to gain out of that. And of course, one of the more fascinating things was. Um, as soon as the election kind of result happened, uh, Telsa's stocks went right down. Um, so yeah, I kind of want to kind of hear about your com- um, comments on that, uh, especially since um, the agenda of mass has been to nationalise um, those natural resources. Yeah, look, uh, the reality is that even after 14 years of movement towards socialism, government uh, Bolivia remains a capitalist country. It remains inserted in the world global economy and in its economy largely continues to depend on the extraction of natural resources. There's been some important changes. Uh, that is that under the mass government, due to its welfare redistribution policies, we saw the largest uh, generator of economic growth was actually internal demand. That is because people actually had money to buy stuff. Uh, local companies had the ability to produce stuff to sell because they actually had people to sell it to who had money to be able to buy it. Previously, there just wasn't any interest in producing for the national market because poverty was so low um, that everything was purely for for exporting. So there have been some important changes, but it hasn't fundamentally changed the the, the nature of of Bolivia's uh, relationship in the the world economy. Um, That said, um, whilst I have no doubt that an an you know, extreme part of why um, other political forces, governments, companies were keen to see Evo Morales government, Evo Morales moved, removed from government um, because they wanted to, they were opposed to the policies that the Evo Morales government had implemented in terms of uh, its nationalisation of the gas industry, in terms of renegotiation of contracts in the mining sector to benefit the Bolivian state. I think the key thing to understand is that it wasn't purely driven just by uh, the, these economic policies. And that is because they realised that even if tomorrow, or even if they had have won these elections last weekend and Carlos Mesa had have been the, the new president, uh, any attempts to reverse those policies would have faced the very strong resistance of the social movements that make up the backbone of the mass. So really the, the real target here was not not just the Mas government, although the Mas government, the fact that it was in government meant it could implement policies that directly challenged um, some of the interests of these transnational corporations and and and, and foreign governments, um, and it's and not just in the economic realm, also in the in the political realm. Um, so we've seen again another announcement of what the Luis Arce has said his government will do um, is that it will work to re-establish UNASUR, the Union of South American uh, Nations, uh, you know, a body that had grown under the progressive governments of, of, of the previous decade, that had basically fallen uh, into repair as right-wing governments uh, came to power in, in different countries. Now, Bolivia has decided that it will take the lead in re-establishing this as a, as a, a body um, that brings together South American countries f- to resolve their problems themselves without the interference of outside forces like like the United States, so we've seen all all, all of these uh, are, are very important. But I think fundamentally, what 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 they want to get rid of is is the, the social movements that, that make up the back backbone of the mass. Because I have no doubt that even if the the, the mass had have lost these elections, we would have still seen an extremely strong mass opposition 
they would have fought tooth and nail to oppose the winding back of any of, of the policies that, that, that had been implemented. And that is why Yanya's government's first steps were precisely around those areas to try to uh, deregister the party. They were unable to do that, to try to jail some of its leaders. They got away with some of that, but not, not completely. Um, forcing some of their leaders into exile, um, forcing some of their supporters basically into hiding uh, because of the paramilitary violence that we saw on the streets. I think this is a really important aspect because they realise that what the mass at the end of the day represents is a political movement, as I said, who has at its core the League's Indigenous Campus Singer movements. Uh, and that is a very powerful political movement. Uh, electorally, it's powerful because it's, it may not be a majority on its own, but it's certainly a large minority um, But that has proven its ability to expand its reach into, into urban sectors. Um, but it's also a, move, uh, a, a, a section of society that's shown that it's highly organised and willing to fight fight for its rights. And breaking the backbone of that is is absolutely the target um, of what the opposition parties have, have wanted to do. They're unable to do that. And in fact, uh, the mass has in some ways come back, uh, I'm not sure if I would say stronger, but will certainly have learned a lot of lessons over this last year and has the potential uh, to, to, to come back uh, uh, stronger with this new, under this new Luis Arce government. Um, just sort of following on from this analysis of the balance of class forces in Bolivia, um, I noticed that some on the Australian left criticised Mas for not taking up arms against um, Janine Añez back when the coup happened. Does this resounding victory vindicate Mas's response to the coup? Like, if taking up arms was mm, the most logical or necessary way forward, don't like, don't you think that Mas might have? gone there like I don't know there seems to at the time when the coup happened there seemed to be this idea that Mas had never thought about the existence of the state and like how the state works and I feel like probably Mas's response to that coup would be informed by their quite detailed analysis of the power structures they're up against and their own strengths. Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of factors. So I, I think the results speak for themselves in terms of what, what was the correct path to take. Um, but I think when it comes to, you know, the, the masses viewpoint and, you know, t- taking up arms, I mean, I think ultimately it, it, t- it tends to be the case that you only take up arms really when you have no other option left. And despite how repressive the Anya's regime was, uh, it was clear that its, its, its political base was very fragile and that as the mass has been able to do, uh, through a combination, and it cannot be forgotten because now it's trying to be rewritten as, oh, they just voted out the, the, the fascists. But the reality is that the only reason they even got to the point of being able to vote out the Anya's regime was because of almost a year of constant mobilizations. Um, to pressure and force the government to have to, one, hold these elections, so simply hold them, because as I said, they were delayed uh, two, three times, um, to ensure that uh, legitimate observers uh, were, were present there uh, to, so that no fraud could take place, and thirdly, mobilise such an overwhelming number of voters that there was no way that anyone could, could question it. And as I said before, that's why even before official figures had been released, um, you know, people like Anya's had to come out and, and acknowledge the result because they, they were worried that 
in the absence of official figures and you know uh, murmurs about what what this could mean was another fraud underway the opposition you know sections of the opposition might launch themselves in, into to creating a violence just as they'd done last year to try to overturn the the ballot box result uh with with street violence but i think you know the the, the main leaders of the opposition realized that that, that was a losing fight uh, that that it was, in that context it was going to have to be them that took up the guns uh, because the reality is there was no way they were going to be able to just justify that and there's no way they were going to have the support of the military, um, at least at that point, to once again um, move forward to, to, to block the Hamas from, from coming to power. So Hamas has always relied on two things fundamentally. Um, that is uh, using any and every democratic space open to them, so never, never giving up on any of those spaces. And I think having gone immediately to take up arms would have been, that would have been a, a a rejection of the what democratic space re- existed there, uh, and, and a closure of that towards an armed struggle, which you know I think there was no indication that they would have won. There was no indications, for instance, of any fracturing of the military uh, over this question of the coup that occurred uh, last year. Much less of the police, who have generally maintained a, a large anti-mass uh, stance. So certainly that that position of use any and every democratic space. And always rely on the on the organisation and mobilisation of the people. The belief that you know, as they say, mass is also in Spanish more. Um, so you know, with, with the people we are mass, with the people we are more. Um, and that's always been the, the principle. And it's always been the one that Eva Morales has followed, who's constantly been criticised throughout all of his political career uh, from sections of the left uh, for always taking supposedly the moderate the, the, the moderate option. But what has time and time again proven to be the option that has been most in tune with the bases of the social movements and with the broader broader indigenous campesino sectors of, of, of Bolivia. Uh, and that's why the reality is that, say, unlike a situation uh, where you had, a, say, uh, off the top of my head, Cuba or Venezuela, where, where perhaps Fidel Castro or, or Hugo Chavez were almost from the start just the indisputable sort of key figures of, of this process, that Evo, back in the day, even when the mass started, wasn't even an undisputed leader of the mass. Um, you know, there was a there was other campesino leaders who who had an equal or perhaps even greater standing uh, amongst the social movements. But what Eva has been able to demonstrate in practice, and again, we can talk about mistakes, whatever. But in general, what he's been able to demonstrate is a a political nous and an ability to really smell which way the wind was blowing and what it was that people wanted, uh, and and basing himself on that, carve out a path that has led you know to a, to a situation today where even despite uh, a, a coup attempt, the mass has been able to now re- return to power and return to power on, 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 an, on an increased electoral majority, uh, something that very few probably uh, would have been predicting, um, uh, certainly any time over the last year uh, since, since the, the last elections where the, where the mass won, but were blocked from assuming power. Oh, yeah. Um, thanks for that. Um, I think that sort of covers quite um, most of um, some of the, the aspects of the election result that we're interested in covering for this program. I guess, do you have like any kind of final kind of comments um, you want to kind of sum up this um, this discussion? Uh, I, I, look, I, I, I would sum up perhaps reiterating something that I you know, sort of mentioned in, in response to the last question, and that is that there's a... A lot of positives to really take out of what's occurred in, in, in Bolivia. Uh, not, not just the, the positives in the sense of the results themselves, but also to try to, try to analyze and look at what has really happened. So rather than try to analyze what's happened in Bolivia by 
starting with a pre-existing framework and then either trying to apply it to Bolivia or pointing out how it how it breaks from the pre-established framework and therefore is incorrect. But just study and learn and, and see what, what, what the movements there have done. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we can just replicate the mass here in Australia. I mean, for starters, we don't particularly have uh, indigenous campesino sector that represents 40% of the population. So, you know, you're already where inability to start from the very starting point that they did. But as I said, the, the, some, the approach that the mass has taken uh, to, to politics, whether that be the construction of alliances uh, amongst different social movements, whether that be its ability to present a coherent project to society that's been able to expand its electoral base and win over, win over other sectors to, to back it, whether it's been the concrete policies um, that it's been able to implement that have fundamentally changed um, people's daily lives and made it a real reason to actually come out onto the streets to, to, de to defend the mass government. The errors that the mass government have made, which explain why it wasn't able to immediately respond to the coup attempt at the end of last year and, and, and defeat that coup attempt immediately and why it instead took a year of debate, discussion, reinvigoration of the social bases uh, in order to get back to the position where it could mobilise its core base and, and irradiate from there a level of support that could ensure the elections occurred and, and won. All of these things are, are, are you know, really interesting and really show that ultimately, you know, as much as it's a slogan, it's, it's also true that, you know, people's power really, really does matter that at the end of the day, people's power will always win out. Uh, of course, it's easier to say the slogan and to work out how do we actually generate, create people's power and build that on an ongoing basis, turn it into an organisational form that can sustain that in the long term. Um, but, but it can happen. Um, it certainly can happen in the context where all the factors seem against the, the mass government uh, uh, against the, the movement towards socialism globally we you know it can be often seem like everything is going in in, in the other direction but it's not not quite the case and certainly yeah Bolivia is, is one example of that so I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next period of course there's going to be a whole bunch of uh, needs for the government to immediately address some of the problems that I mentioned the economy COVID-19 but also have to deal with ongoing problems that it drags from the, 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 the movement toward, from the, the previous Morales government. And in particular, it will be the question once again of how to deal with the relationship between social movements and governments, uh, where we see the problems of how, for example, co-option or integration of social movements in the state can lead to their demobilization, um, which in large part explains why those social movements weren't ready to mobilize to defend the electoral result last year. But despite that, and despite one would think having learnt those lessons and despite all the lessons of the last year of the remobilization of those social movements to demand the elections, we already see social movements demanding places in the, in the Eva Morales, in, in, sorry, in the Luis Arce ministry, demanding positions in, in the state. Once again, those same problems reappearing. So it will be fascinating to see how those discussions occur, uh, what, what lessons are drawn from the previous period, what things change, how things are done differently this time to, to move forward. Um, but it will be done. Perhaps not in as, as a positive situation as was done previously, where you had a lot more left-wing governments uh, in the region, but it's certainly been done in the context where there are perhaps more protest movements in the regions. We see that in Chile, and we see that in Colombia, perhaps they're the, the two most uh, graphic examples of protest movements now that have lasted several months. In Chile's case, I think we're coming to a year now of, of popular protests uh, around a constituent assembly and against the Piñera government. All, all of these factors, lessons that can be learned will, will be really important. And, and of course, expressing our solidarity will be as well. That's been a key factor of why 
the Libya is, is where it is today because of the, the international spotlight that solidarity activists, uh, for example, here in Sydney, the, the Association for Human Rights in Bolivia, who I've had the pleasure of working with, uh, you know, have, have been able, have been a real part of, of doing that, have all in their own way contributed their, their little grain of sand to, to making this victory possible. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much um, there, Fred. I think that was a good sort of um, note to kind of end it on. Thanks, right. thanks Fred. You're listening to um, Green Left Radio, and um, we just might go play a quick announcement and move on to the next part of the program. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card. And once a year, your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. For our program for Green Left this week, we are going to be having a discussion with Annie White, who is an activist with Fight Back New Zealand about the recent New Zealand election result, which has seen the Labor government led by Jacinda Ardern win an outright majority off the back of its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And I guess to start off this discussion, um, Annie, um, what can you tell us, I guess, about this um, the electoral result in New Zealand, I guess, and its significance. Yeah, so as you said, obviously we've had uh, Jacinda's Labour Party uh, get a landslide landslide victory. This is pretty historic in terms of the scale of the victory. So it was the biggest uh, shift in votes in a century, uh, and it's also historic under MMP, which is the uh, Mixed Member Proportional System, which is a system that has generally allowed minor parties to have more influence. Uh, but this is the first time uh, that a party under MMP is likely to be governing alone without even, potentially without even confidence and supply agreements or anything. And I've heard suggestions on the left that this means they can better implement a kind of a left-wing agenda. But I think the opposite is the case because, what you know, if you look at the MMP uh, and what MMP means, it was brought in essentially because both Labour and national governments were introducing neoliberal reforms and there was a kind of a popular support for proportional representation to curb the parties. So now with this kind of historic landslide for Labour where they've managed to went over the middle, they're not going to want to, to lose the middle. And they're also, they also have no reason to be accountable to, for example, the Greens. They don't need the Greens. So yes, it means they can kind of do what they want, but it does seem like uh, what they want is to govern for the middle. So yeah, it's a, it's a historic win, but I think probably a historic win for the centre rather than a swing to the left. Oh, yeah. Well, going in from that, um, because I guess from my understanding, um, 
as a result of this, Labor now has an increased majority. And I guess looking at the last kind of um, election, um, there was this whole thing where the New Zealand government was criticised heavily um, because they had to, to govern, they had to get in a coalition with New Zealand First, which is, from my understanding, uh, a, a kind of right-wing kind of nationalist party, almost akin to sort of one nation in Australia. And I guess I want to kind of hear you kind of expand a bit more on this. How was um, the Jacinta Ardern government able to kind of win over this kind of centre uh, in terms of its support base? Um, and what can you give us a bit more of what the kind of implicate, political implications of this increased majority, which you've alluded to? Yeah, so, I mean, the winning over of the centre, in large part, it's a matter of very competent crisis management, uh, some symbolic commitments, and uh, an unwillingness to take any really radical measures. So in in the 2017 election, they came in talking about uh, climate change as the nuclear-free moment of our generation, but they haven't really made any sort of radical changes uh, that are needed to address climate change. Uh, whereas, you know, they have one over, for example, the, the South Island, all of the rural seats in the South Island party voted Labour, which is quite unusual. So, so they have managed to win over kind of middle voters, even conservative voters. And I think they're very aware of that. So, you know, on the, on the election night, there was a lot of talk of governing for all New Zealanders. And this came not just from Jacinda, uh, but also, for example, from uh, Grant Robertson, who's a who's a prominent MP within the party. They both used this phrase of governing for all New Zealanders. Uh, the press very much picked that up and and ran with it. Uh, and I think that very much indicates that by saying we will not scare the horses, you know, we will govern for the centre. Uh, you could also see it in in Jacinda's acceptance speech. Uh, when she, uh, she sort of talked about how the world is polarizing and we need different sides to listen to each other. She basically said the left needs to be willing to listen to the right. So it's, yeah, very much, uh, the, the line has been that they've been able to win over the center. They've probably gained votes actually from National, the, the right wing opposition party. So uh, they don't want to lose those those middle voters. That's that's kind of very much the the message that's being hammered home. Yeah. Well, I guess that gets into the guess the next question, which is because um, coming from someone who's in um, Melbourne at the moment, um, one of the kind of things that has I guess been quite striking about um, Jacinda Ardern's sort of government has been its popularity and success in terms of handling, I guess, the COVID-19 pandemic, and you could argue that it's one of the best performing countries in that context. Um, but what has, in in that context, what has really been the response of the right um, to this electoral result, especially since I have been reading some criticism to the right um, that indicates some criticism of the lockdown measures that New Zealand um, did, especially in relation to the um, classic economy? <laughs> Yeah, so I definitely think it's true that this government's handling of COVID has been very competent. You know, it's been the best in the Anglosphere uh, in terms of just basic public health measures, 
and being willing to apply some restrictions. And the criticisms of the right opposition have been pretty incoherent. So it's sort of been the usual, uh, the lockdown is too restrictive. Next minute, it's not restrictive enough. Uh, the borders are too politely, too, too, sorry, too tightly policed and then not tightly policed enough. They're really, they've really been on the attack in a fairly incoherent way. And I think even a lot of people on the right didn't like the, uh, the last leader of the national party, uh, Judith Collins, who has always been kind of an attack dog and pretty vicious. Uh, so yeah, she, I think, uh, Collins was kind of able to, hold on to the sort of more militant elements of the National Party, but wasn't really able to to win over the middle. So I think it's, yeah, uh, Ardern, she's really uh, convincingly sold herself as a a competent crisis manager. But then, you know, if you look at some of the measures, there are some issues with them. I mean, uh, one of them is that they've kind of set up a two-tier benefit system, where people who lost work as a result of COVID uh, get get more money than people who didn't have work prior to that. So there's a kind of a deserving and undeserving poor element to how they've how they've designed it. They've increased police powers, which I think it's you know you can see, you can see why with the need for lockdown measures, but it potentially sets sets a bad precedent. Uh, there's been problems in terms of how, how migrant workers had to deal with the situation and, uh, now they're introducing charges for, uh, returning New Zealanders. So it's, it's not necessarily a very equitable handling of the crisis, but I mean, it's certainly a competent handling in terms of just basic public health measures. And I think what we're seeing is there's this, real worship of Jacinda internationally. And I think it's just, it's to me, it's like an index of how bad things are elsewhere. You know, the fact that we've got someone like Donald Trump in the highest office in the world, really, uh, somebody who's flagrantly racist, uh, incompetent and ignorant. So just some kind of baseline competence and public health measures which should should be really universal uh, are taken as as exceptional. So I guess the thing, the the point is not necessarily that this is an incompetent government or what have you. It's simply that it's not a government that's willing to take any radical measures. It is a government of the centre and the middle. And I don't think people should have illusions about about the nature of this government. Uh, and yeah, I mean the right. That it was very, it was surprisingly self-reflective on the night actually that they were talking, uh, the National Party were talking about their own failure, uh, their own lack of discipline. A lot of, a lot of talking heads were kind of prodding them to admit that Judith Collins, the leader, was part of the problem, but they, they, nobody actually stuck the knife in. But yeah, it just has, it's been a, a negative campaign that drove a lot of people away, and I think they're kind of aware of that. Uh, and and people are just aware that this government has handled COVID competently. That's how they were able to win over right-wing and middle voters. Yeah. Well, going um, respond to one of the, I guess, the points you kind of raised there. Um, 
I'm kind of interested in, I guess, knowing in what the actual track record of the Jacinda Ardern administration is from a left-wing perspective, because I guess, yeah, I I noticed it as well. Uh, amongst the kind of left in, um, in Australia or even internationally, uh, Jacinda Ardern is kind of like put forward as this, you know, amazing left-wing leader um, that we should all aspire to kind of be. And, of course, there's even been some comparisons I've even noticed from sort of UK Labor circles, which almost somewhat see Jacinda Ardern as almost equivalent to kind of Jeremy Corbyn. So I I guess want to kind of hear a bit more detail on what is the actual track record from a left-wing perspective. Yeah, well, well, in terms of the UK comparison, I think the thing to consider there is that she started out her career working for Tony Blair. So, I mean, I think she's maybe comparable to Corbyn in the sense that she has a strong, uh, she has a sort of a, a dedicated following, a much larger dedicated following, but still, you know, is a, is a figure who is able to inspire and mobilize people. But her politics are certainly not Corbyn's. They're not that kind of traditional social social democratic politics. Uh, and I mean, in 2017, she very much came in with lines like, "Again, this is the nuclear the uh, that climate change is the nuclear free moment of our generation," which people may not be aware, New Zealand banned uh, nuclear shipping in the 80s, so that's what that was a reference to. But you know, to take that example, the the example of climate change, uh, this government introduced the the zero carbon bill, but that is not really remotely adequate. They quite actively sought the input of the National Party. Uh, so basically, it's a it's a climate bill that's approved by the right, and because of that, it's inherently compromised. So it embedded the emissions trading approach, which uh, which people will be aware uh, has created new markets and not been able to curb emissions. Uh, it excluded major emitters. Uh, it was non-binding. So it really was completely inadequate for this, but essentially species threatening situation we have right now. Uh, it was really much more of a of a symbolic commitment rather than rather than being willing to take on you know extractive capital agricultural capital and make the sort of changes that are actually required to to prevent runaway climate change so yeah that's just one example it's been similar with indigenous rights so there's a, a land struggle called Ihumatau. Uh, which is basically against uh, against property developers and for a uh, a Māori kinship group uh, iwi to to have control of that land, and Jacinda has refused to take any explicit position on that. She's refused to p- even visit the site when petitioned to do so. Uh, she's really just not been willing to u- upset the horses on that and other issues. I mean, the Christchurch shooting is another example where, you know, she was praised for wearing the, the headscarf, which I can understand. And again, in an international situation where you have someone like Donald Trump leading the free world, it seems pretty exceptional for someone to simply respect 
Muslim customs at a funeral. But that, I think, is just a sign of how low the bar is, that simply respecting the customs at a funeral is really exceptional. But what she did after March 15th was actually beef up police powers, give police more guns. Uh, fortunately, that trial with of police having guns kind of collapsed and uh, has been reversed after after popular opposition. But uh, yeah, I definitely think on a whole range of, of policy areas, it's been a very compromised government and very unwilling to take any radical measures. Uh, and I think now that they're talking about governing for all New Zealanders and they're very aware that they, you know, have this base in the middle, uh, they're going to be, con- they're going to continue to be unwilling to, to really scare the horses in any way or to make any radical changes. Unless, you know, unless their hand is forced. I mean, again, their, their hand was forced on, uh, the arming of police where there was, uh, after Black Lives Matter, there was uh, quite a significant uh, uprising uh, that was also also challenging uh, police violence, and it had, and the introduction of guns had been heavily criticised by Māori and others. So that was one thing where they were they were actually forced to to back down and not not sort of increase the arming of the police. So yeah, I think the only the only possibility is that their hand is forced by, you know, by popular pressure because it's they're not going to be curbed by the Greens, for example, in Parliament now that they're going to be governing alone. Well, that brings up, I guess, the next question is, what is, I guess, the position of the left and, I guess, the broader social movements in relation to this um, new election? Um, what are kind of some of the perspectives in terms of, in terms of how they would um, analyse this result? Well, uh, there, I mean, there are people who called for a just in the vote, obviously, and people who didn't. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends who you're talking about in terms of the left. I think on what you could call the broad left, you know, not necessarily the sect left or sort of Marxist left, uh, she's definitely beloved. I mean, it's often been quite hard to criticize uh criticize her because uh of the sort of adulation she receives uh and I think for a lot of the smaller groups uh that does kind of pose a bit of a question you know how to how to respond to that constructively i mean but um yeah I mean I think on the broad left uh there's a real uh people are definitely buy into the whole the whole Jacinda narrative uh and she has you know she has an appealing personality she's a she's a competent crisis manager but I just think we we have to be fully aware that she's she's not going to take any any radical measures and any attempt to compare her to Bernie or or to Jeremy Corbyn I think is is not not really accurate. Uh, I don't I, I don't think she represents that kind of polarizing politics that would be willing to frighten capital or implement major reforms. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I think the left, as say, it's the broad left is is very sympathetic, uh, and the kind of more uh, hard left is is kind of trying to figure out how to 
how to respond to the situation. Hmm. All right. That brings us, I guess, to the guess, next question is, um, and this will be especially of interest to our listeners, um, what are real, What are some of the current sort of issues and, I guess, grievances that are currently, I guess, driving kind of social movements in New Zealand right now? Like, from my, um, from my knowledge, there's currently this um, referendum around legalising cannabis that's currently going on. I'm not sure if that has been finished up yet. And I guess what is the position of this newly elected government in relation to some of these grievances? Um, is this government likely to um, address them? Um, what, what is the kind of what is sort of the balance, I guess, of forces there? Well, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the cannabis referendum, and I think that's a good example of what I've been saying uh, in, that, uh, in that Jacinda has said she, she is not going to uh, announce how she voted in the cannabis referendum. Uh, so, you know, even that, which is not exactly a particularly radical position, I would say now, like a, a lot of states have have legalized marijuana, but even with that, she's she's not willing to to take a public position. Uh, but in terms of movements, I mean, certainly historically and through to today, the uh, Maori sovereignty movement has been a really significant element of New Zealand politics. Uh, so, yeah, that goes back, well, it goes back to colonisation, but, uh, you know, you could also talk about the, the Māori land march in the 70s, uh, and, yeah, it's, it has had an institutional impact as well, where there's a flawed treaty settlement process that, uh, that has been really a concession to that, to that social movement. Uh, and, I mean, I mentioned Ihu uh, Matau, which is uh, again a struggle against against property development of indigenous land. That triggered uh, protests in in a number of cities. Uh, so you had uh, Dunedin, which is on the opposite side of the country, and you know a, a fairly white uh, area in the south. Uh, and in that, in that, in Dunedin, the entire city was shut down by a protest. And, you know, you had large actions in Wellington also and up at Ehumatau itself, which is near Auckland. Uh, there were protesters clash, clashing with police. So that was quite a, quite a polarizing moment in about mid 2019. Uh, so there's, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of, depth that the Māori sovereignty movement has uh, that some other kind of, I guess, progressive and left forces don't don't really have. They don't have the same kind of embedding in communities. And Jacinda has just been very vague with that kind of thing. I mean, her statements about Ihimatau are things like, we are here when the important conversations are happening. We are listening which is kind of, you know, she could, uh, if she was a very different kind of political leader, she could just come out and say, this is Māori land and they have a right to decide how it's used. Uh, but obviously she's not that kind of a political leader. Uh, and I mean, I mentioned Black Lives Matter, how that, uh, inspired, uh, also protests in every, in every city in New Zealand. Uh, and that kind of ties in with a, uh, also relatively recent, uh, movement around 
prison abolition and and decarceration. So uh, there's a uh, there's a group uh, of people uh, people against prisons, Aotearoa, which has uh, played a pretty significant role. I mean, it's not it's it's a relatively small group, but it's had a reasonably big impact uh, in campaigning around around prisoners' rights and ultimately for prison abolition. Uh, and that uh, with with the Black Lives Matter protest setting off protests in New Zealand as well. Uh, that uh, that certainly had an impact, and as I say, uh, uh, the attempt to beef up police powers after after the March fifteenth attack wasn't successful, uh, uh, largely because of public pressure. Um, so yeah. Uh, well, I guess the next question that I wanted to kind of address, and then we can kind of conclude the interview, I guess, is the I guess the question around industrial relations, um, like the the state, I guess, of the trade union movement in relation to this government and workers' rights, um, because I guess one of the things we noticed in Australia is um, the the in terms of the kind of post sort of COVID kind of nineteen kind of recovery, um, the trend of of the Australian government, for example, has been basically to take away and wind back industrial um, relations. And of course, there's also, I also saw a recent sort of interesting sort of um, comment by the Marxist sort of economist, um, Michael Roberts, about the whole question around the New Zealand economy. And it's, um, and basically that the New Zealand economy will be in this position where the government will be forced to essentially um, give concessions um, to business, and I guess want to hear kind of some of your comments. I guess on some of those kind of issues. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly over the last thirty to forty years, the uh, union movement has has largely been obliterated in New Zealand, uh, similar to a lot of a lot of countries after the introduction of of neoliberalism, uh, and in New Zealand that. That actually started with the fourth Labour government in the in the eighties, who introduced uh, a lot of radical neoliberal measures, uh, mostly around privatisation and deregulation. But then uh, a bigger blow came from the the following national government that uh, got rid of uh, compulsory unionism. Uh, and there were attempts to organise a, a general strike at that point, which were suppressed by the by the trade union bureaucracy. So the unions essentially shot themselves in the foot, or the leadership shot themselves in the foot, uh, and compulsory unionism was destroyed. And not long after, you know, uh, the pro- unionisation is at ten percent of the private sector. And 20% overall, including including the public sector, there was really a, a, a retreat to to the public sector and an unwillingness to to really take uh, take militant measures on the part of the union movement for a long time. Uh, and we've seen a decline of of real wages of, over the past 30 years. Uh, and I mentioned that uh, that's part of what triggered uh, the struggle that resulted in MMP, mixed member proportional, uh, and there has been some room for sort of left-wing th- third parties to, to place, place pressure on these issues. Uh, but, I mean, through to the 2000s, you saw uh, more organising of hospitality workers, 
particularly through uh, a, a group called Unite, which which organised uh, basically casual and service sector workers and ended up focusing quite strongly on fast food, actually. Uh, and they, they've had some success in, in proving that you can organise in, in the sort of uh, in the sections of the working class that are not necessarily conceived as traditionally proletarian. So, in other words, uh, yeah, the service sector, the casual sector, young people, uh, migrants, feminised industries. I mean, the average union union member in New Zealand uh, is is a, a woman of colour, is a woman who's Pacifica or Māori. Uh, which very much doesn't fit with the common stereotype of the union movement. But uh, as for this this incoming government, I mean, uh, in in 2017 they they sort of talked about how capitalism has has failed people, sort of. Uh, but they've they've really stepped away from that language uh, and certainly not been willing to take any again any really radical measures. They have um they have introduced some measures around around union recognition that uh that weren't the case in uh under the last government. But then for example they also uh maintained what's called the Hobbit Law, which was a law that um basically cast workers in the film industry, particularly actors as uh, as independent contractors and therefore unable to unionise. And this was introduced as a union-busting measure under the last government. Labour said they'd get rid of it, and they didn't. They they made some amendments to it. Uh, and, yeah, they've, they've, uh, they've, they've also increased the minimum wage, but then, you know, the last government was also increasing the minimum wage. So it's it's really been more, more half measures. It's still... The, still not as bad as what you would get under national, but is certainly not, uh, uh, again, willing to take any radical measures. We saw, uh, a struggle, uh, break out with the, with the nurses, where basically the, the leadership had endorsed, uh, quite a dodgy deal, and there was this, uh, basically rank and file opposition to, to the leadership, which, uh, which led to, strike actions and there was uh there was a lot of community support for the nurses uh unfortunately in the end after quite an inspiring struggle they ended up with uh quite a poor agreement anyway and so that was that was a bit unfortunate because it's one of the few outbreaks of rank and file struggle we've really seen in some time uh yeah so it's I mean another thing is with um with COVID, uh we've seen the Council of Trade Unions leadership kind of take a an approach of like managerial collaboration, um similar to to what's been uh challenged in the Australian NTU, uh but there hasn't really been much of a challenge to the kind of collaborationist approach. Uh, of the CTU leadership. So, yeah, I mean, a- again, it's, uh, this government's approach to the union movement is a little better, but, uh, but certainly not willing to scare the horses, not willing to do anything that might result in capital flight. And unfortunately, uh, the line of a lot of union officialdom 
uh, is really to clamp down on any criticism of, of the Labour government. Uh, very much, very much still uh, supportive, uh, generally of, of of the Labour Party. Oh well, um, thanks um, very much for that, Annie. I guess um, do you have any? We'll conclude this interview, I guess now. Do you have any kind of final comments you'd like to kind of make? No, uh, I I don't think so. I'll leave it there. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, thank you very much, Annie. Um, but, yeah, you're listening to um, Green Left Radio. Um, um, we're just interviewing Annie White about the uh, lectural results of, in New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, I might just play a quick announcement and we'll move on to the next part of the program. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And now it is time for the activist calendar. Um, so we have so, a number of activist events that are coming up this week. So on Friday, um, the 23rd of October, which is today at 12.30pm, there'll be a union staff uh, assembly, um, escalation our actions to curb our employment employees deadly squeeze and um yeah if you are if you go on to the green left um website you should be able to find details on the zoom link for that but yeah highly encourage all uni staff to attend that and then from saturday october the 24th to sunday um the october the 25th um there is going to be the eco-socialism 2020 conference from rebellion to revolution um which is going to be featuring a panel of different um speakers um and it's going to be happening at sort of different times so if you go on the green left website again um there will be details on what times um for the sessions are going to be happening and what um and the agenda then there'll be uh, there'll be an online event, um, online music, Rock Against Racism, on Saturday, the twenty fourth of October at um, seven pm, and you can book up your tickets if you search up online music, Rock Against Racism. On Sunday, October the twenty fifth, there's an online event, the Book Room, with Susan Arudohawa and Sawa Sabui, and and that's going to be happening on Sunday, October the twenty fifth at twelve pm. On Monday, the 26th of October, there is going to be an online forum on Australia's treatment of LGBTQAI refugees from 6.30pm on Monday, October 26th, um, and it's being organised by Refugee Action Collective. The next event is on Tuesday, October the 27th, there's going to be an online book launch um, organised by the New International Bookshop, um, titled Removing the Stalin Stain in Conversation with William Briggs. And so that's happening at 6pm Tuesday, October the 27th. Um, um, and you can find out more details on the New International Bookshop Facebook page or even their website. 
on Wednesday, um, the 28th of October. Um, there's a number of different sort of events all sort of happening at the same time. So there's going to be an online rally, Lloyd's Ensure Our, Ensure Our Future, not Adani. And that's going to be happening at 7pm, Wednesday, October the 28th. There'll be online forum Free Palestine at 7.30pm at the same time as well. And there'll be another online forum exploring degrowth and pandemic solidarity at 8pm. And you should be able to find um, the details of all these events on the Green Left Activist Calendar um, page or even searching some of the titles of these events into Facebook. And then on... on um, And then from... Um, on. Thursday, October the 29th, there'll be an online forum titled School Funding Inequity, Inequity, the Impact on Teachers and Students. And so that's happening on Thursday, October the 29th. And yeah. And then the last, um, um, the last event to advertise is there'll be an online conference, The Party, um, Communists in Australia History from 9am to till 5pm on Saturday, October the, um, the 31st. Um, so um, November the 30th, wait a minute, let me double check. Yeah, on Saturday, October the um, 31st. So, yep, that's um, pretty much rounds it up in terms of the Green Left um, activist calendar. And, um, yeah, hope you um, hope you find something of interest in some of the events there. All right, we're just going to play a quick announcement and then we'll move on to just the next part of the program. 3CR remains closed to all broadcasters and guests until further notice. The good news is that so many of our programs are producing new shows each week from home. From Lost in Science to Living Free. Done by Law to Defence of Government Schools. Concrete Gang to Chronically Chilled. Mafalda to Music Matters. We're here with compelling content and rousing radio. Listen live or listen later. Tune in, stay safe and keep listening. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, we'll just maybe for the next part of the program, I might just play a quick song by Camp Cope, and um, which is titled "Growing." Yeah, hope you enjoy.
listening to Green Left Radio and you're just listening to Growing by Camp Cope. Anyway, we're getting into um, the end of our program. I'd just like to um, put a plug for Green Left. Um, Green Left is um, the main, forms the kind of main core of this program and we're always after more um, we're always looking for more supporters to keep Green Left Radio and Green Left um, content publication. We publish um, all the kind of struggles against injustice um, and that go and um, have been around and we're just getting into our 30 year anniversary. But yeah, if you would be interested in becoming a supporter of Green Left, you can become a supporter by going on greenleft.org.au forward slash support. Anyway, um, I'd like to thank all our listeners and thank our guests and we'll stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions after this program and you'll be hearing from us next week. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.